This is the Family Practice Podcast, an informal, interview-style podcast exploring the stories, experiences, and expertise of LGBTQ medical providers. I'm your host, George Fraley. Welcome to the Family Practice Podcast. Uh, Today, we have Dr. Jared Baton with us. Dr. Baton, hi. Welcome. Good morning. Nice to talk to you. Nice to talk to you as well. So, um, will you please tell us what you do? So, I'm... um, I'm, we're talking here in Seattle, so I'm here at the University of Washington, where I am a, an academic researcher. I'm a, a, trained as an infectious disease physician and epidemiologist, and I'm a professor here of global health medicine and epidemiology. And do you have any sort of specialty in those fields? Yeah, so I've wor- I work on HIV. Um, uh, clinically, I work on HIV. I do HIV treatment and a bit of prevention work, and, but most of my life has been spent in doing HIV prevention research. Um, all of it in Africa, virtually, and um, a lot of it, especially in the last 10 years, directed towards PrEP. Towards PrEP. Yeah. Okay. And what parts of Africa? So I've always, I've, I've worked in Kenya for, I've worked in Kenya now for 20, 20 21 years. Um, uh, yes, that long. Yes. I can <laughs> kind of believe that. Okay. And, <laughs> and um, but in the last few years, I've been lucky to work with collaborators in Kenya, Uganda, um, uh, Malawi, Zimbabwe, Zambia, Swaziland, and South Africa. Wow. The, the first time I ever met you, um, I was working as a community organizer at Gay City Health Project. Which would have been a like few years. A few years ago. years ago, I think. <laughs> yes. Like and I remember you coming in, you were doing a volunteer project. Um, and it's been sort of amazing to watch your career grow over the past few decades. Yes, it's been amazing to do. I, I, I'm very lucky with what I've gotten to do and what I, what I get to do every day, what I've gotten to do. It's, uh, it's a fun life. Yeah. So why don't you take us through sort of um, a quick little synopsis of your career path? Great. <laughs> so... so um, so you know, I, I a lot of it is linked to education, and then and then and then obviously work. But that's what career is about. I mm-hmm. um, I have had a career path that was interested in doing good clinical care mm-hmm. and doing and doing research. I have always wanted to be a researcher and doing research that was immediately relevant to people's lives to patients' lives or people's lives. And I, um, before we, even before we met, the, I, was, I started doing research as a graduate student on trying to find way, better, ways to, um, better ways to treat and prevent HIV in women in, in Africa. Mm-hmm. And that, back then, it was very, I, I moved to Kenya in 1998, and it was, there was no treatment there was no antiretrovirals available there at the time. This was, and, it, you know, here was just the point where we were seeing all the great benefits of triple therapy. And there, there, there was no uh, no treatment and very little prevention other than sort of general counseling on behavior and no testing even. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, a wor- it was a world then, a place where um, testing wasn't done because there was a feeling that why tell people's bad news, Yeah, uh, which I think, you know, those of us who grew up here also would remember mm-hmm. kind of those feelings too. Um, and so I worked on, uh, then I worked on vitamins actually, hmm. believe it or not, vitamins to try to, to treat HIV, which by the way, does, did not make much difference. Um, um, and then 
since then have done since then uh, all kinds of different work to understand um, how to how I potential places to potential ways to make prevention better potential ways to make treatment better how people feel about prevention and treatment which is some of the stuff I really love to understand how um, communities and clients interact with the prevention treatment system in the world. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I think mo- the stuff that I've spent a lot of work on is developing new strategies like PrEP. And yeah. um, one of the things that has been a really amazing ride the last 10 years is doing work on PrEP. And I um, helped lead one of, the, one of the two registrational trials of PrEP for HIV prevention um, with a whole bunch of amazing colleagues. Uh, work that was done out of Kenya and Uganda. And then we've done years of subsequent work to figure out how to make it workable and deliverable and demonstrate it safe and everything else for for people and communities. Yeah, so, I mean, I think the big trial that people know about is like the partners trial, right? Would you mind just sort of giving the yeah. folks at home a little yeah. info? So the trial is called the Partners Prep Study, and mm-hmm. it's, there are a lot of there are a lot of uses of the word partners out there for different kinds of there for really everything, are. Yeah. right? Right yeah. in in real life and in science life too. But anyway, uh-huh. the the Partners Prep Study was a a, a full out uh, placebo controlled randomized trial of prep for individuals who were at risk for HIV because they had a known serodiscordant partner. And these were all heterosexual couples in in Uganda and Kenya. And some of them were women with a positive male partner, and some of them were men with a positive female partner. And uh, one thing that was amazing around all of that was understanding the dynamics of serodifferent partnerships and how uh, how invested those couples were in finding out if something could be effective for prevention and figuring out ways to maintain relationships that they really cared about. Mm. Super powerful. But the trial was 4,800 couples, and they volunteered for up to three to four years of their time to come every month to understand if PrEP would work for HIV prevention. And it did. It was the... It was the and it was the clinical trial that showed that PrEP was effective for, um, for heterosexuals, for women and men. And when people took the drug well, it uh, in the, the 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 randomized analysis was great, seventy five percent reduction. The when people t- in the subset of people who took it well, it was ninety percent or more. Mm. And so it's the and then tons of the wonderful thing is it offers this platform to answer all kinds of questions about safety and tolerability and use and everything else there. I feel like PrEP has been a whack-a-mole of everybody can bring up every million concern that you could have. And part of our job as researchers to is to whack the moles um, Mm -hmm. and to say, okay, we can figure out, we can understand resistance or we can understand tolerability or adherence and safety and safety in pregnancy and contraception and conception. And to be able to provide the data to um, um, either support or refute concerns that people have so that that, uh, clients and prescribers and the world know the parameters of what they're doing mm-hmm. yeah. it's changed yeah it's it's it is <laughs> it, it prep is really amazing because it has it's it, it's amazing to work on prep to work on prep in kenya and uganda and south africa mm-hmm. and to live with prep in, in operating in my community in seattle at mm-hmm. the same time and to see the this is you know very different places but to see the 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 
to intimately see the evolution of prep use in both of those places and then to see it happening on a global scale. I mean, I can't even imagine what that must feel like. Because uh, with research, um, you know, sometimes it doesn't work. And Oh, yeah, I've had lots of experience <laughs> with that. Don't, 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 yeah. get, don't get me wrong. Right? <laughs> I have lots and lots of research that fails, yes. And, and, that, and, and then, then, then to have <laughs> something like this, which worked and worked so well. Yeah, it's... it's I went into doing... I went into this career because that, that, that's this interface of clinical work and public health because I wanted to do work that helped people and made a big impact on the world. And I have been, I've, for me, it's incredibly motivating and super lucky and, and joyful that mm-hmm. um, I've been a part of this thing that has made, that makes humongous difference in people's lives. You know, it, and it was, it's, I remember, I can remember very well when we got the results of Partners Prep to not because it, not because of what it would mean for getting a fancy paper or fancy science, but what it meant to hear about how when we had the results and we told the participants in the studies what it meant to them, mm-hmm. that they had worked, they had worked so hard themselves as volunteers and then all the teams who made it work to figure out something like this and now they had it. And then, you know, the years since, what the difference has made in people's lives mm-hmm. to, to, you know, all, all these anecdotes, the um, couples who were able to get pregnant safely because they had PrEP. And then they bring you, they bring that baby and they say, this is a PrEP baby. Mm-hmm. Or couples who say, it's hard to be zero different and we would have broken up if it wasn't for this. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, or the... The here in Seattle, the um, you know to to be able to talk to guys in Seattle about how prep has changed how they how they view sex and how they view they view intimacy and self confidence mm-hmm. because because of this and that's you know you you go to medical school you go you don't get trained to or public health school you don't get trained to measure self confidence or to <laughs> or to or to research self efficacy but it's as powerful, if not more powerful, than um, than a fancy paper in a fancy journal. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's really been yeah. world-changing. Yeah. So what was your motivation to, you know, you said you ha- you've always wanted to get into research. You always wanted to do things that helped and changed people's lives for the better. Where did that motivation come from for you? That is a tough question. Um, so, I, you know, I... I Probably there are many layers to it. So, you know, I think I am in, I inherently always, I'm inherently science-minded and was going to be a scientist, but I was science-minded with, how do we say it? I don't know, pragmat- pragmatism, practicality, that I wanted to do science that was going to, that would be beneficial. And mm-hmm. I, I guess I always grew up with a strong connection of tr- wanting to help the world in some way. Mm-hmm. And, and maybe that's why I went to medical school. Maybe that's, that's certainly why I have research where the kind of research that I do um, is right at this interface of being able to help people and populations right away. Um, and I work on HIV because I think it's the, you know, it's, it's, I think HIV has been the most important challenge our world has faced in my lifetime. And, and obviously being, you know, being growing up in the, 80s, early 90s, sort of coming of 
age. I, was, I would have gone to college in 1991. Um, that is, it's a real, HIV is obviously really powerful imprinting in my, uh, my personal world. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so that's my part of the work and reason I work on HIV. It's ironic, of course, that I work on HIV in heterosexual populations in Africa um, and, and then live in Seattle where the, um, where the, the burden of HIV is, a, is, sort of qu- is quite different, obviously. Mm-hmm. But I don't, think all, I don't think that's actually so disparate. Mm-hmm. It, and how did, did Africa happen because of the research projects that you were doing, or was there a different interest in Africa in the beginning? How did that sort of come about for you? When I decided I wanted to work, when I decided I wanted to do work that was research work that was public health oriented, um, there was a strong appeal to working international. I had a strong appeal to working internationally, um, in part because I thought the um, I could I could feel the ability to have big impact. There were big questions out there that that. Big questions out there that needed solutions that could have big impact. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and it's interesting, of course, because there, now in health, there are many, many people who work, who do international work now in in in, in medicine and public health. And um, it wasn't nearly the case back then when I was in public health school. Ever, all the other students with me were working on uh, cancer and heart disease mm-hmm. in the U.S., and I was as outlier working on infectious disease in. Um, outside the U.S., um, and but now it's quite different. Um, I think I was lucky to do it at a time where the I really was able to live in a culture that was not mine and try to learn as best as one can to live to work and live and work in a culture that's not yours, mm-hmm. and to think about not just the science I do, but how it interacts with the whole web of. Um, of, of society, of persons and populations and society. And that's a great thing about global health. And <laughs> I mean, this, this idea of global health has really emerged in the, in the 20 years that I've been working. Um, that, that health on the global scale is not only about just work with a pass, where you have to have a passport to do it, but it's <laughs> about that health decisions are also societal decisions, are also economic decisions, are also empowerment decisions, and and um, and they are that one has to work really across all kinds of aspects of life to make um, to make health interventions uh, have effects and have all the benefits that you want to have them, but also those health interventions can have all kinds of other great effects mm-hmm. that you that. Um, that aren't about pills and blood pressure or whatever else. Mm-hmm. How long were you in Kenya? I lived there for two years. For two years. And how was that experience for you, like with your personal identity, being in a different culture? Yeah, uh, it, uh, it, was a, it was a wonderful time to live there. I lived, so I, it, uh, I lived in Kenya. Kenya's a, Kenya's a wonderful place, and, mm-hmm. I've, and I have tremendous connection to the place and individual people there in the society and the society larger um, it's a very it's a dynamic it's a dynamic it's a, it's a very dynamic place and, and a country that over 20 years I've been able to see huge development and it's tr- 
tremendously educated place with so there's great great scientists and great peers I get to work with um, I also lived there when there was I, I people ask about this now when I think about the kind of work I do now I, we didn't have email Oh, interesting. Yeah. And then we then we got an email and several it was so expensive. So several of us shared one account and you'd have to long distance dial up to Nairobi once in the morning and download all the emails and then respond during the day and then uh, then up once in the evening to upload all the emails and get the other ones back. High tech. Oh my goodness, <laughs> right? And and certainly no, you know, certainly we did no phone very few phone calls. It was, you know, international dialing costs for phone calls and no cell phones and so it was a great way to work because it was um, as I was there um, as a student and it was uh, wonderfully independent to be able to work there it was also great to, to live in a to live in a different culture and I think if you're going if you're going to work cross-culturally to be enmeshed in a culture for at least a period of time if not longer is really really powerful to mm-hmm. to um, help to understand differences in the world, uh, which that alone is really powerful, to help to understand sort of you, who who you are and where you come from and how other uh, how other societies grow. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. So there's like these two huge prevention models that have come to light over the last few years. One is PrEP, and then one is undetectable equals untransmittable, yeah. right? And um, those two things together have just been such a powerful impact. Globally, but also like you know here in in the U.S. and in the population that that I serve at least, um, what were you, did you were you also involved in the undetectable equals untransmittable component of those studies? So I've done. Um, so I'm a huge U, U equals U fan mm-hmm. uh, uh, of the. Uh, both on the science side of things and on the advocacy side of things. So U equals U is really kind of on the advocacy side of things, mm-hmm. supported by kind of science. So I've done, I've, I've been lucky to work on some of the studies of, uh, some of the studies uh, that showed that if one is on antiretroviral treatment and suppressed, that you can't transmit. Mm-hmm. Um, some of the observational studies, not the, not the, uh, not the HP 10052 trial, but other things along that. And I work a lot now on trying to understand what that means for people, which I think is also really interesting. Yeah. Uh, to, so um, I was just reading some things in my email this morning from we're doing, uh, we're doing qualitative interviews with providers and with serodiscordant couples in Kenya to understand what they know and they think about U equals U. And uh, providers, are, providers are so much like providers here where they... they, they it's like providers here were a few years ago where they say, I understand the science in my <laughs> head that U equals U, and then I cannot get out of my mouth to say to say untransmittable. I cannot say it. I can mm-hmm. say untransmittable if you use condoms also, <laughs> but, not, but not the same as untransmittable. Um, so it's great. Though, that's one of those examples of parallels. Like I remember having that same conversation with my colleagues at my, my clinic across the street a few years ago that they could hear the data on... Uh, treatment as prevention, but they couldn't say it to their patients. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, so I love questions of of, of treatment for prevention, you know, U equals U, and how that rolls out into the world. And so I've got to be involved in part of those questions, and I've got to be involved in a lot of the prep questions. And I love the interface of the two mm-hmm. because they, I. You know, I wanted to HIV prevent. I wanted to HIV prevention because I want to end my career and not have to 
then nobody else has to work on HIV prevention. Mm. That, that's, that's the, the, if I would have had the, my major goal at 25 when I retire at whatever it's going to be, 65 or 75 or something, <laughs> that, that, you know, my ver- that the last people that I'm working with go work on blood pressure control. Mm-hmm. I'm sure that'll still be a problem. Yeah, <laughs> that'll be a problem. <laughs> right. yeah. or, or, you know, or work, you know, or work on malaria or something else. Mm-hmm. That no one has to work on HIV anymore mm-hmm. because it's because it's done. Because I really do think HIV is eliminatable. Yeah. Um, uh, and HIV and it's all of its um, public health consequences are eliminatable. The I think the synergy of of treatment as prevention, uh, the, the use of antiretrovirals as treatment having a prevention effect and the use of antiretrovirals as PrEP, having a prevention effect work together incredibly well in on kind of all levels, at the, you know, the individual level and the kind of conversations that, in the individual level and how individuals are making their own prevention decisions, mm-hmm. how they interact with uh, at the dietic level, how they're interacting with a partner mm-hmm. and the kind of decisions that partnerships make, um, either established partnerships, like a lot of the couples that I work with that we've gone work with in Kenya, Uganda, or wherever else, or more transient partnerships. Mm-hmm. Um, I, you know, I, one of the, the mo, you know, one of the moments I knew that PrEP had really made it in Seattle and treatments permission in Seattle was when everybody put on their grinder profile that they were pause undetectable or negative on PrEP. Right. Those are like the things now. Those are the things now. And isn't yeah. that amazing? Yeah. That, that, and, and it is stigma busting. Yeah. Right. That, that, that it is amazing that this idea that you, you, if you 10 years ago would have gone around to people and say, you know what, the, a pill, regardless of what's in the pill, is it a prep pill or is it a treatment pill, is going to uh-huh. bust stigma mm. in, you know, in the gay community in Seattle. Mm-hmm. People would laugh at you, right? Would yeah. laugh, would laugh. Like biomedical things are not supposed to be stigma busting. But the, the, and it has nothing to do with the doctors because the doctors didn't do any of this. Mm-hmm. It's the community said, took, these effective i these 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 effective prevention strategies that had good science behind them and and then I don't know, repackaged them or appropriately packaged them as uh, powerful community messages. Yeah, and I love I the the you know I, had the, I have this very clear moment of feeling about prep. It's in it's in that pile over there someplace. Uh, when the stranger had a cover article on a guy who had a guy who started taking prep and the title of it is is something like how i learned to love pause guys like he had sex Mm. with a positive guy for the first time because he was on prep yeah that when i read that article i thought this has arrived and and this has arrived and it has it has resonance that's way beyond way beyond what what uh, what a pill is supposed to do yeah I mean, when the U equals U came out, one of the first um, like mental images I had were my patients back in the late uh, 2000s who would come in who had gotten biohazard tattoos on their body because they were paws. I don't know if you've seen that, but like a lot of guys did that, you know, and it was a way for them not to have to tell someone. It was sort of this unwritten tattoo symbol, right? And how like that's not like a handkerchief yeah. in the back pocket from the but 70s. But it's like, not a thing. Like, like right. undetectable <laughs> equals intransitable. It's just right. so empowering. It's so, I, I love, so I love you equals you, and I love it. I love you equals you because it is, it is above and beyond treatment. You know, treatment as prevention is kind of the science way of talking yeah. about it. And you equals you is about, is about, is about Y-O-U. It's about, you know, it's, it's, yeah. it's self-empowerment. Yeah. 
because it's it's it it, it is very it is I don't know it is grabbing back what it means to be pause and mm-hmm. saying it is I have control over my life and this I have control over the, my I have control over my life I have control over this virus mm-hmm. I have control over who I am super empowering I yeah. love talking to guys about you I love talking to guys when you talk about you talked about your patients I I have had such amazing conversations with the my patients who are kind of in that 50ish year old range mm-hmm. who um, be you know who were positive in the late 80s early 90s don't have a lot of life experience from before that so they aren't the ones who are like 70 who who remember who have a lot of life experience from the 70s who had the the, the ones who became positive in the late 80s early 90s have many of them had this huge burden of being positive and still being alive, all the guilt of, of being alive, and not feeling like they had, a, many of them not feeling like they had a sexual life anymore because of the stigma of HIV. Mm-hmm. And to see the conversations I've had with them over the last five years about what, five years or so, over the over what it means to be uninfectious and and seeing them... Uh, breathe easier. Yeah, you can almost right. see the weight come right. off of them. Right. And and the same way for negative guys. I mean, for for you know for for guys like my age who would have you know who were who were who are who, you know who would have been um, you know becoming adults in the late eighties, early nineties, mid nineties to think about a world of you know sex without fear mm-hmm. on the on the because of prep. Same thing. Yeah, yeah. Because when we were growing up, we're we're in similar age. Um, the message was always like, you can't trust anyone. Right. That was right. like, and it, and it's so hard when you, you know, because being queer, you're not born into a queer family per se. Some some are right, but but for the most part, you find your family and, um, this idea that you can't trust the people that you're with or that you want to have sex with or be in a relationship with, and, um, you know, now there's just, that's kind of. There's an exit for no, that. There's an exit for well, yeah. you can't tr- you can't trust people, and that sex is that sex is dirty or about disease. That sex is about disease. I think danger, I, right? It's about danger and disease. And I yeah. feel like, as you know, as a medical provider, I think we put that on people for oh, a long sure. time. That that sex without condoms, sex without condoms was bad, mm-hmm. and I talk about this a lot now and uh, when I give talks I talk about this a lot because I think prep and U equals U push us this way that sex with other condoms is not bad sex with, the disease, sex with disease is bad mm-hmm. sex with disease is bad we want to have sex that doesn't have disease as a part of it right like we should figure out ways to prevent disease but like condoms are not part of that that Condoms are one way to prevent mm-hmm. disease, but we won't, we're in the business of preventing disease as doctors we're not in the business of preventing sex yes and to get to be able for people who have li- lived their entire life or their entire adult life with fear or shame or stigma about sex and to be able to blast that out, mm-hmm. blast that away, that is that is so amazing. Yeah. yeah, and I think you're absolutely right. When you start seeing the community grab onto this information and they start changing cultural norms, you know, like you said on the grinder yeah. and scruff and growler, whatever profiles... Um, that means that 
it's becoming part of the legacy of the gay world and HIV. um, And it's just so cool to see. It's also really amazing to talk to um, folks who are HIV negative about risk calculus and about how, like, you know, you hear these statements like, I would never um, go there with a pause guy or something like that. And to talk to them about how, well, if they're undetectable, they're actually probably your lowest risk category because they know their status, they're taking their meds, everyone else is just as negative as their last test, you know? And it really sort of changes, you can see people's minds flip around. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's... Also, just to to be able to see people say, I own that. Mm -hmm. And and to see people have that conversation where where, where, um, the... It's not just the... You know, to talk with negative guys about how they have conversations with pause guys. It's not just that that pause guy is undetectable; that that he has done, he is in control, mm-hmm. and that's I don't know. That's appealing in some way, mm-hmm. um, and uh, and to be able to see people have these conversations ac- across status, I think is 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 really really important and interesting to see because those those cross status conversations in you know in in the US were not did not happen for a very long time. Yeah. It was very divided. Yeah, yeah or secret. Right. Um, I also think what's interesting is people because I get to work in because I get to work in, in South Africa and Kenya, those conversations have started happening to there in in great ways that that the the embracing of First of all, the advocacy for treatment, uh, you know, the advocacy for treatment in, in Africa, sort of followed by about 10 years, the advocacy for treatment in the U.S. and was rocked the world. And now the advocacy for prevention and the cross-talking um, from POS folks and NIG folks um, it, for effective prevention strategies is now happening, you know, hap- is beginning to happen in the same way that's been happening in a lot of communities here. Yeah, what does access to prep look like? Uh, not so the you know the best access to prep is in the United States. Yeah, uh, the United States has far more people on prep than anywhere else in the world. Mm-hmm. Um, and but even the you know even in the U.S. it is uh, it is not uniform. Yeah, it's um, mostly like white. It's gay, white, well, white, gay, wit, educated, a little bit older-ish. Mm-hmm. I refuse to say older since I'm in the older-ish category. But like, yeah, I hear you. <laughs> right, yeah, right, right. You know, so it's it's the well-connected people, which is, which is great. And so you know, someone living in Seattle to, you know, I think, you know, Seattle last year reported they had more people on prep than on treatment mm-hmm. in the city of Seattle. And I think places like Seattle and San Francisco and Sydney and London are starting to see fewer and fewer new infections every year. So it's it's having that impact that I that I went into all this for. Um, so the U.S. has got a lot of people, more people on prep than anywhere else, not nearly enough, mm-hmm. not nearly as much access as people should have, um, particularly for m- younger men and men of color and mm-hmm. men in lots of different places. Africa is kind of in the same place, that it's okay. beginning um, in many places. Uh, it, I feel really lucky that I work in, uh, that I do a lot of work in Kenya. Kenya's and South Africa are the leaders, and I work in, get to work in both of them. They are both pushing in sort of different ways, but they're both pushing um, PrEP as part of national programs. Mm. And that's really encouraging to see. And they're hitting all the same stumbling blocks that we hit in the U.S., which is also interesting to see. <laughs> um, that there's, 
you know, how do you pay for it? And people don't know anything about it. And the initial reaction of even people who would benefit, who, you know, who are interested in PrEP is a lot of self-shame or self-doubt. Um, the initial reaction of providers, and I'm kind of pointing at you right now because I remember when you started providing yeah. PrEP in Seattle was, we don't want to, we're not ready for this. It's yeah. going to be safe. Maybe we'll do it, but only for the people we think are the very, very, very best people to yeah. somehow our best definition of people to do it. No, I remember you were giving a talk and I was there and I was just like, oh, it seems so strange. I'm going to put someone on an HIV medicine to prevent HIV infection. Like it was such a hard mental grab. And you were just like so confident that I was like, okay, I'll do it. Right. Yeah. And, and it, I don't know what I say. What I say to people now is, you know, you need to prescribe for like, I don't know, three to five people and have them come back and then you mm-hmm. relax a little bit and prescribers become better at it. But the first, the first prescription for sure is very hard to do. Yeah. And so we see all of that in, you know, that prescribers have, Prescribers have concern for their patients. Like, is, mm-hmm. you know, why would you put somebody in under Prescribers have, prescribers have judgment. Mm-hmm. You know, shouldn't people just be better? Why, why, why should we do this? Prescribers have, um, prescri- prescribers like for anything new, prescribers have inexperience with something yeah. new. Same, you know, same way that I, when a new blood pressure medicine comes out, I think, mm, I don't know if I, I've never prescribed that before. I need to learn more. Um, and we, Kenya and South Africa and all the other places now that are doing prep, there are tons of countries are doing it, are starting to do it, are all working through those too. Mm-hmm. And I love to see those parallels. I love to see the the varieties of experience and the similarities. I'm glad that you love it and it doesn't frustrate you because yeah. I could see how like reliving that could be a little stressful. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, it, it's part you know part of it is because. It's, you know, diffusion of anything new mm-hmm. in medicine is, is always long. And PrEP is actually, PrEP is slow if, I PrEP is slow. It is slow, but it is faster than many th- mm-hmm. other things in, in, in health. So moving so far is faster than many things in health. So I have to be, I can be impatient and optimistic at the same time. Fair enough. I'm going to ask you some questions that I get asked. Um, quite often, right? So I always get asked, is PrEP the reason that the rates of STIs have gone up? Oh, that's, I, lo- that I, I was wondering if you were going to ask that question. So, well, so, I, I have so an the, answer, right. but I want to hear your answer. No, the, the, well, the sci- the, so there's science on this, mm-hmm. and then I've got some gut feelings on this too. So the, the science on this is that STIs, you're talking mostly in the U.S. and yeah. places like the U.S., so STI rates were, have been going up for about a decade plus now. Mm-hmm. Some of that, the rise starts before there's PrEP. The rise is still there when PrEP is in the mix. Maybe PrEP is... So it precedes PrEP. It has to do with... It it precedes PrEP. PrEP probably has a little part of it. (laughs) For PrEP individuals, the the kind of guys... A lot of the science is seeing that the kind of guys who are seeking PrEP are either have STIs or at real risk of STIs. And so... Boy, being on PrEP is absolutely the right thing, mm-hmm. as well as getting screened and treated for STIs. I don't, they're, they're not antagonistic for each other. They're actually, they come together as a package. The drivers of all this, I think, are really complex. Mm-hmm. It is exhaustion of 30 years of, well, 30 years of scolding and diseasing sex and everything else. It's uh, some of that. Um, some of it is, some of it is, it, the, it's the synergy of PrEP and U equals U. Mm-hmm. 
Um, and so it's on both sides of the equation that people feel less at risk of HIV, rightly so, because when you take uh, people are taking really good care of themselves and are less at risk of HIV, and STIs are following that. Yeah. Um, but I am encouraged about it because it actually makes us have to be more creative about thinking ways to thinking of new STI prevention. Mm-hmm. Um, and some of that is going to be just screening alone. I think screening for STIs alone, if you screen well enough for STIs you, alone, you can get ahead of them mm-hmm. and then try to reduce from there. So that's, I think that's what a lot of people are trying to do. And, uh, you know, good, good prep care means frequent STI screening. Yeah. And I'm just going to like put a little knowledge tip in there, pro tip, like for patients who maybe don't, or providers who don't necessarily screen a lot of STIs, like that means like a throat swab, a rectal swab and a urine sample, um, and a vaginal sample if the person has that. Yep. Yeah, because um, it's always striking to me how many patients come in and they tell me that they were tested for gonorrhea and chlamydia and the only screen they had was a urine. Yep. Yeah, not There's enough. a lot of gonorrhea hiding in throats out there. Yeah. Yes. Um, so, yeah, I mean, when patients ask me that question, I say, you know, PrEP might increase rates because I've had so many patients tell me that they're, ha- they're using less condoms now that they're on PrEP. But I think that PrEP came out synergistically really with grinder and scruff and the access to sex has gotten so much more easy. And those two, those things kind of just sort of happen at the same time. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's really hard to tease one apart one the other, but people who are on PrEP just have so much more access to STI treatment and screening and um, vaccines, right. you know, so... Well, I try to think what to do about it. Like, it doesn't make me want to do less prep. What it wants yeah. to make me do is do more STI prevention because mm-hmm. the, you know, the world needs more HIV prevention. Mm-hmm. Some of that will be prep. Some of that will be other stuff. But the world needs more of that. And then on top of that, we got to work on getting work on STI prevention. Mm-hmm. Great, uh, more opportunities for doing more good things for people. Yeah. All right. Another question I get asked a lot: um, hypergay. Gay. Yeah. Um, an episodic prep usage. Yeah. What are your thoughts about that? So, so um, f- you know, for the people out there who don't jump onto what Ipergay is exactly, so yeah, <laughs> Ipergay was a prep trial that was done. It was one of the, it was one of the prep clinical trials that was done after the results of the the registrational trials of prep were done, and it tested um, it f- tested if. The, the word they use is event-driven dosing, mm-hmm. where the event is sex, but the, the, where people take um, two pills of PrEP uh, sort of the, on the day that they're going to be having sex, two to 12 hours, I think, was the, was the recommended regimen, and then a pill the next day and the pill the day after that, and so rather than taking it every single day. Mm-hmm. And so for in Ipergay, the, the um, average pill use in a month was about, I think, 16 pills, which would be about four sex sex in a month, mm-hmm. I guess, um, or at least four acts with pills and maybe some others where people forgot, but um, yeah. four acts in a month. And the consequence of that, of course, is that someone can take fewer pills and that saves a little bit of money. That makes maybe easier if someone's a good planner. I, um, there's the, um, in the U.S., both the label doesn't say anything about event-driven dosing, and CDC doesn't say anything about event-driven dosing. In Europe, people, uh, the national systems seem to be recommending either daily dosing or event-driven dosing. I think the evidence, and, and, and by the way, it worked great. Yeah. So the, 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 it worked great. The 
nobody got HIV um, in Ibergay who was actually taking PrEP. There were a few cases of individuals who had been assigned to take the event driven and had stopped taking it completely. Mm-hmm. completely. So it works. It seemed to work, you know, essentially equivalently well to taking it every day. Um, I think it's a great strategy, only for um, uh, only for men and, re- and really men who have sex with men. Mm-hmm. So it's 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 there's no evidence for men who have sex with women, and there's no evidence for women that it would work. But for uh, guys or really probably anyone whose main exposure is rectal, mm-hmm. um, I think the evidence is pretty strong. And I have um, talked to patients of mine about it about this strategy particularly for someone who didn't want to be taking something every day and didn't have sex, um, you know, maybe had sex twice in a month and thought, why would I take something every day for, for, to prevent something around something that happened uh, more rarely? And I think it's a totally reasonable choice. Yeah. Yeah. I've I've appreciated also for patients who are going on really long international travel Mm -hmm. where their insurance denies a vacation. Carrying that many pills, they're carrying that many pills with them. Yeah. Yeah. And so then they're like, well, what am I going to do? Like I'm going to Europe. That's an excellent one. If you're going to Europe for two months and you can only get approval for one month of pills. Mm-hmm. Um, it does require a little bit of planning. My joke is always, I feel like, I don't know if Ipergay proves that Frenchmen are very organized or something mm. because I don't, like you, you have to, two to 12 hours before sex happens requires at least some amount of foreknowledge, but mm-hmm. maybe people have better plans than others. But yeah. Um, <laughs> um, the... Uh, but I, I think it's completely a reasonable strategy, and I, and I'm, I'm hopeful that um, it's, it's interesting to see the data coming out of France on this because in France, what they do is they offer guys either strategy, mm. and what they see is about half the guys take daily and half the guys take um, event driven, and every whatever you know they see them every three months or whatever, um, some fraction of them flop back and forth. So it's, I think it's, it, it gives, it's exactly what prep is about is, is it's giving people the power to make their own decisions and the, to make it in the way that's right for them at that moment. Yeah. You know, like I love, now uh, we're talking to, I know we're talking, are we talking to family planning folks, family practice folks on this? Mm-hmm. Family practice folks, of course, think about contraception Yeah. much more than, and I don't know, much more than. ID folks do, but prep, when I think about prep 10 years from now, I think about much the way that contraception is, where where prep is something that someone's on for a while, because, and then not on for a while, in the mm-hmm. same way that women are on contraception, not on contraception. And when I think about the future of prep, I think about lots of delivery strategies, maybe a shot, maybe an mm-hmm. implant, pills that you take every day, pills that you take only once in a while, in a very similar way to contraceptives. Yeah. We're just beginning. We're just beginning. Yeah. yeah it's amazing. Yeah. All right. There's been something that's been kind of driving me nuts in terms of like the daily use versus the episodic use. And that's that when we prescribe it daily, we tell um, people who are going to be having anal intercourse that it takes seven days to like protect you. And people who may be having vaginal intercourse, we say like 21 days or so to protect you. But then we have this study, these like episodic usage where people take two pills two to 12 hours before and they're like protected. So um, I'm curious if you have anything to add about the like the lead up. I know it's a big nasty uh, question. The lead, up, the lead up is the lead up questions are so fraught and yeah. there have been many fraught discussions about this and the 
um, I'm sure someone will hear this and send me some angry email. But Please but, don't. <laughs> we're just don't angry. Yeah. <laughs> um, and it's interesting, of course, because the seven days and the 21 days are these differences for rectal exposure, essentially, and vaginal exposure. And those are the U.S. ones. Mm-hmm. The WHO does not have this differentiation oh, between okay. 7 and 21. First of all, that's Which caused some fraught, fraught controversy. The other piece that I always think about is if you're on daily prep, you know, the moment you take your first pill, that first month is, you know, even though those first seven days or the first 21 days, it's having some effect because that's exactly what we used to give people for as PEP. Mm-hmm. We used to yeah. give people, you know, tenofovir and tricetabine only as PEP, as post-exposure prophylaxis. And... If you didn't think that it was having an effect the moment that first pill went in anybody's mouth, why would we have ever given it as, as PEP? Mm-hmm. So we, I mean, it's, it's obviously having some effect. Yeah. It's those seven days data are based on when it reeks, reaches sort of peak concentration levels for a pharmacologist to measure if they did a biopsy of, of vaginal biopsy or rectal biopsy. How that relates exactly to protection is many steps. Okay. And Ipergabe, pushed that envelope by just testing it. And it was, you know, it was it has the result it has, which is this amazing result that it that that intermittent that 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 intermittent episode episodic driven use was great. Mm-hmm. Um, there's no testing of episodic use for women or for heterosexuals again. And that's the, the important yeah. point to emphasize is that and maybe for w- women, um, because of the pharmacology it would suggest that the epi- the episodic driven shouldn't would be would be more challenged a little bit, mm-hmm. but hard to say. So anyone like with a vagina yep. or having vaginal sex, yep. there may be a delay. Yeah. So yeah. I think for you know for for a, a woman or a trans man having um, uh, who has vagina having vaginal sex, I would say I would not use um, episode driven dosing. That's that's good. Yeah. So. Um, one of the things I've been asking um, many of the providers is is what and and anyone in Minnesota is what y- advice you would give, like somebody who wants to go into sort of research around, you know, HIV or queer health in general. Like, what sort of advice would you give? People come to me all the time to ask about advice about careers, and I and I. Um, my biggest advice piece is to follow your gut I don't say follow your heart because I don't I'm not a I, maybe I'm too, maybe I'm not emot- emotive enough but <laughs> but, but, but but I if we're do what grabs you and what's meaningful and I um, I'm really lucky because I have fallen into working on something I, this, this was never my life my life plan was not when I was I don't know when I was 17 was not I, if you, I would be shocked if you, if you would have told my seventeen-year-old self that I would be working on, self, you know, sexual health, self-efficacy. I would, well, I probably would have blushed like crazy if I was <laughs> sexual health, self-efficacy, and, in, in, you know, in Seattle and in Africa or something. But yeah. the, the, but fo- work on things that are meaningful to you and 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 go all in, and um, and that and. Follow the leads that will take you, and take some risks. I mean, I think I've, I've taken um, I've taken a, you know a fair number of risks in my research career to do things that I hadn't thought I could do, and those 
pan out really well a lot, and and work with good people. Mm. Um, I get to work. I've gone to work with some. I think some of the greatest people in the field that I work in, and uh, every day I'm happy about it. And when I, the I have all these great collaborations, and I talk with. You know, I work in Africa, so I do a lot of 6 a.m. phone calls, and it doesn't bother me to be up at 6 a.m. on the phone all the time because it's with great people. Mm. Um, and that helps. So that's 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 really powerful. I think um, um, I'm lucky that I that the work I do crosses all of these cultures mm-hmm. and cro- cro- crosses cultures and crosses boundaries, and um, I get to, you know, I've built a lot of career working um in places like Kenya and, and South Africa and Uganda and other places, and I am, you know, I, I and I live in Seattle, and uh, you know, I have, I have a husband and a family in Seattle, and and I interface with the community here, and I see patients across the street, who are, um, you know, I see HIV positive and HIV negative patients across the street here, so I get to, so I I get to do all these different things. I get to do research and be on my computer and be on conference calls and fly a lot, but I. I'm embedded in a community, and my work touches all of those places, even though they're all really, it's all really different places. Yeah. That sounds really magical. So, yeah, I'm happy. Thank you so much um, for spending time with us. Thank you for all of your work. I mean, you've just really helped create this whole new gay world and, and heterosexual world and just a safer place to have sex and love. And thank you so much for all of that. Really oh, appreciate thank it. Thank you, and I, I want that quote, like, <laughs> Jared Bacon creating a new gay world. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's really been impactful. Yeah. Thank so you. thank world you World so of love. Much. Thank you. That's great. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this week's podcast. Please note that this podcast is about individual experiences in healthcare and may be different from what you've experienced. If you would like to share your story, please message us on our website, familypracticepodcast.com, and we'll be in touch. The information discussed in this podcast should not be used for personal medical decision making. Any views or opinions expressed in this podcast do not represent the views or opinions of any organizations mentioned. If you enjoyed the podcast, please subscribe and follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. There'll be a new episode in your feed in about two weeks, and thank you again for listening.